There was a man who sat at a metro station in Washington, D.C., and he started to play the violin. It was a cold January morning, and he played for 45 minutes, and he played six Bach pieces on his violin. It was during that time, it was the morning rush hour, and so it's calculated that thousands of people went through the station most of them on their way to work, most of them on their way to go about their day as this man was playing his violin. In the 45 minutes that he played, only six people stopped and stayed for a while. About 20 gave him money, but continued to walk their normal pace. He collected a total of $32. When he finished playing, silence took over. No one noticed it, no one applauded, there was no recognition, and everybody went throughout their day. Here's what the people don't know that were walking by this violin player. People didn't know that this violinist was not just some normal person, but his name is Joshua Bell, and he's actually one of the best musicians in the entire world. He played one of the most intricate pieces of music ever written by Bach, and he was playing on a violin, a Stradivarius, that was worth three and a half million dollars. Dollars. So just two days before he played on the street, Joshua Bell played to a sold-out theater in Boston. Seats were averaging over $100 a ticket. This is a real story. Joshua Bell was playing incognito in the metro station, and it was organized actually by the Washington Post as a social experiment about perception, about people's tastes and priorities. And this is uh, kind of what they were thinking. They were, they were thinking in a commonplace environment at an inappropriate hour, can people perceive beauty? Do people stop and appreciate it? Do people recognize talent in an unexpected context? And one of the conclusions that, that you can draw from this experiment is this. If we don't have a moment to stop and listen to one of the best musicians in the world playing the best music ever written, playing on one of the most expensive instruments in the world, how many other things are we missing in life? This is how I feel about the story of Easter. We are in such a hurry that we often... Uh, go about our business every day, and we often miss the profound story of Jesus. We miss this perfect person who came, who was God, but gave up the rights as God and poured himself out, and he sacrifices himself on a cross, and, but then he's resurrected, and, and we just kind of go about our days, and we don't think about the story of Jesus. Maybe it's because we've heard the story so much and we're so familiar with the story that the story has just become ordinary to us. No different than a man dressed in normal clothes playing some nice tunes as we pass by and go about our thing. But we never stop. We don't stop and turn aside to hear the beautiful music of heaven. We don't stop to hear the story of Jesus and his resurrection and what that means. Today is a day to stop. Today is Easter Sunday, and I believe if you will stop today and to think about Jesus and think about the cross and think about his resurrection, I believe that you'll hear the music of heaven and that you will be filled with hope today as it fills your ears. You see, we as believers, we have a defining moment that we look back on in history 
a moment that we believe changed the world forever. That after this moment, nothing was ever the same. There's everything that became before this moment, and then there's everything after it. And that moment is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's the lens through which we view everything in our life. And the resurrection is supposed to produce hope inside of us. I want to talk today about hope. What is hope? Hope is a confidence in God and his goodness and mercy that they can be relied upon and that his promises won't fail. Hope is the eager, confident expectation of the life that is to come. And it's rooted in the historical fact that Jesus lived a perfect life, died a sacrificial and substitutionary death, but that he was raised back to life on the third day and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and he is our soon and coming King. This is why we have hope today. This is why we take time and we stop and we pause and we look at the story. Because our hope is not circumstantial. You see, worldly hope relies on optimism. It's really just wishful thinking. We can hope things will get better. We can hope we'll get a job that we like. We can hope we'll find love. We can hope we will be healthy. Money comes and goes. People come and go. Health can be lost. Family and friends can be lost. That's why, as believers, our true north is not the circumstances. Our hope is not in circumstances. Our hope is the unfading hope and confidence that we have in Jesus. Our hope is in the one who gives life to the dead, the Bible says, and calls into existence things that did not previously exist. This is where our hope lies today. In a person named Jesus who was resurrected, we believe, from the dead. So I want you to hear the music of hope today. Today is all about hope for all people. And Peter uh, talks about hope in his letter. And I want to turn there today to, to 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Peter talks about a living hope. And that's what today's about. It's about a living hope. And this living hope is forever tied to the historical reality of the resurrection. 1 Peter 1 3 says this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. I want to, in this text, in 1 Peter, we'll read some more of the scriptures here in a moment. But I, there are three things in this text that I believe can cause hope today. And uh, I have to give credit to where credit is due. Pastor Susie Silk talked about this, and she just nailed it. She talked about our past, our present, and our future, and how we can have hope for all three of those, all of our life. Our past is taken care of. We, Jesus is with us in the present, and our future is decided. As we read through the text today, I want to show you the work of Jesus, the person of Jesus, and the promises of Jesus. Let's start with our past and how we can have hope today about our past. Number one, the work of Jesus. Jesus has taken care of our past. This text says that we, that God has caused us, our Father in heaven has caused us to be born again. He has caused us to be born again, meaning something happened in the past 
that is taking care of the past. You know, think about this for a moment. What does a baby do to be born? The answer to that is nothing. I don't know a single baby who ever decided, you know what? I think I want to be born. I think I want to exist. Babies don't decide whether they exist or not, and they don't decide whether they are born or not. Now, they have to cooperate when it's time to be born, but the, the, the conception and the birth is up to the mom and the dad, okay? She, uh, the, the mom is the one, really, you know, when it's time, she is the one who goes through agony and pain through birth. And, and think about birth, even back then, birth in the first century, it was dangerous. I mean, it's still dangerous today, but back then, even more dangerous, even more painful. No hospitals, no drugs. It's a big deal when a woman gives birth. And so, but quickly after birth, uh, after the child is born, the pain and the agony gives way to great joy. Why? Because there is a new life. Uh, there is a, a, a new baby. Someone has been born. And in the scriptures, we see Jesus goes through pain. He goes through agony. He goes through anguish. But why does he go through that? Because he has a joy set before him that one day we will be born again. The scriptures are clear. We were dead in our sin. We were dead in our bend towards evil. But God in his good pleasure decided long ago that we would be born again. That we would be born into a new reality so that we can be alive to the things of God. Jesus on the cross, what was he doing? He was birthing us. He was, he was going through pain so our past could be dealt with and we could be born again. If you look at uh, the beginning of 1 Peter in verse 2 in the New Living Translation, it says, God the Father knew you and chose you long ago and his spirit has cleansed you and made you holy. As a result, you have obeyed him and, been clean, and have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. May God give you more and more grace and peace. So Peter tells us that long ago, past tense, that God had made a decision. There was a problem. Humanity was fundamentally broken. We were fundamentally broken on the inside. There's a rupture in humanity. Our relationship with God was estranged. And we were estranged from God. And because of that, we were estranged from each other. We had a problem. But this is what the scripture says. Before we ever had the problem, God already had a plan. Before you could do anything bad or good, God had already decided that he was going to pick you for his team. He chose you. And all you have to do is respond to his choosing. This is such good news today because this shows us that no amount of striving and human effort can cause God to love us. No amount of effort can fix the deepest fundamental problems we have of sin. But our problems couldn't be solved by us earning anything from God. But our salvation today rests on the fact that Jesus came and died and gave his life. And it was the Father's good pleasure. It was the Father to his glory to choose us as recipients of his love and to cleanse us. The work of Christ is finished today for our past. This is good news. This gives us hope. When Jesus was on the cross... The last thing, one of the last things Jesus says is he cries out, it is 
finished. In the Greek, that's actually one word. It's the word tetelestai. He cries out, tetelestai, Jesus does. Finished, done, the work is over. In the ancient world, this word tetelestai could be used in a couple of ways. One of the ways it could be used is a, 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 a servant, a master to a servant. When a, when a servant would finish a task, a master would say, go and complete the business. Don't come back until the job is done. Don't come back until it's finished. And after the job is finished, then the servant could return. Not returning until the mission is complete. And so Jesus is on the cross and he's, re- he's been sent by his master. He's been sent by his father. And he's saying, Father, it is finished. He's returning now to his father because he finished what his father sent him to do. Another way it's used is priests in the ancient world. Priests would inspect lambs before they could be sacrificed. And the lambs had to be perfect and without blemish as an acceptable sacrifice. And so it would go through a really uh, thorough examination process. And when the examination process was finished, the priest would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. Jesus, the only one without blemish, the only one worthy of sacrifice, the lamb who could take away the sin of the world. He's the only one that could be offered up on our behalf to deal with sin once and for all. It is finished. Another way it was used was artists, a painter or an artist or a sculptor. They would work on a beautiful masterpiece and they would step back from their beautiful piece of work when they were done, and they would say, Tetelestai, it is finished. Another way is merchants. Uh, You know, let's say you have a mortgage. You know, we all have mortgages if you own a house, but the truth is you don't really own a house. The bank owns the house. But one day, hopefully, not in the too distant future, you will make a final payment on that house. And the debt you owed will be canceled. And see, they would get... Back in the day when a merchant would make a final payment uh, or or when someone would make a final payment to a merchant, they would get a certificate that says no more more payments and stamped on it is the word to tell us thy. One more, prisoners, Roman citizens uh, and people with a certificate of, uh, would have a certificate of debt nailed to a prison door when they had finished their sentence, when they had done everything that they were supposed to do, nailed to the prison door would be the word tetelestai, paid in full. I don't have to do any more time. So let's put it all together today. Jesus was the servant who finished the mission. It's finished. Jesus was the perfect lamb. He had been inspected. It was thorough. He was without blemish to tell us die. He fulfills every type and shadow of the Old Testament. Uh, like a great skilled artisan, Jesus steps back from his beautiful work and says, it is finished. There is no debt to pay on your part or my part. It is finished. We are prisoners that can go free because we have been ransomed. And when Jesus was nailed to the cross, our debt was nailed to the cross. Our shame was nailed to the cross. Our guilt was nailed to the cross. And he says, it is finished. Author and speaker Tim Keller notices a difference between Jesus' last words and the prophet Buddha's last words. Buddha, some of his last words were strive without ceasing, but Jesus' last words are it 
is finished, meaning your past is taken care of today. If you are in Christ, you have hope because your past has been dealt with by the death and resurrection of Jesus. It's finished. That's the work of Jesus. But now let's talk about the present. The past has been dealt with, but what about the present? What about today? What about the life we're living now? And for this, we have the person of Jesus. Let's look at 1 Peter uh, chapter 1, verse 6 now. It says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold, that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor and revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter addresses people that are following Jesus. He's talking to a church. He's talking to people that love Jesus. But here's what you notice, that even though these people love Jesus, they still are experiencing pain presently in their life. They're at this, and, and, and so listen, following Jesus doesn't exempt us from pain. Following Jesus, our past is taken care of. In the present, that doesn't mean we're not going to have problems. It doesn't mean we're not going to walk through times that are really hard and that we don't experience pain. But here's what's interesting, is that at the same time they're experiencing pain, they are also simultaneously experiencing joy. If you go back and look at that verse, there's two things that are happening in the present tense. He starts out by saying, in this you rejoice. You are rejoicing. But then he also says, you are for now grieving. <laughs> there are two things that are happening at the same time. You can, if you are in Christ, if we live in this world, this is the reality that at the same time we will experience pain and rejoicing together. Now you would think that hope and pain or joy and pain, that they're not coterminous with each other. You would think one would swallow up the other. And in the world standards, in the world's eyes, this is true. If you're in pain, if you're grieving, if you're suffering, if you've gone through loss, then that loss and that pain can just swallow up hope. And you can become hopeless. And you can become without joy or happiness. Or let's think about the other side. Let's say if you win the lottery, you're healthy, and you're headed to Jay Alexander's for lunch today to eat a prime rib. You're pretty happy, okay? You're hopeful. You're pain-free. But presently, as we, as we know Jesus has finished the work, and we wait on the day when he returns to make all things new, we actually simultaneously feel pain and joy at the same time. You can experience two realities at the same time time. So I went back and read all of the resurrection accounts this week in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I just wanted to read them and spend some time in them yesterday. And here's what struck me. All of the accounts of the resurrection begin at a certain time of day. They all begin at dawn. Go back and read all of the, all of the accounts of the resurrection. They all start at dawn. They begin at the time of day where the sun is just peeking over the horizon. And the darkness of Good Friday 
and Silent Saturday are fading away and the new day of Resurrection Sunday is dawning. And this is precisely where we live. If you're a follower of Jesus, we live at dawn. We are not at high noon yet. You know, high noon is where the sun is at, the, at its peak in the sky and there's no shadows being cast. We don't stand at high noon yet. We don't live at high noon yet. We're at the dawn, which means we will walk through some shadowy days. Jurgen Moltmann says it like this, the believer is not set at a high noon of life, but at the dawn of a new day, at the point where night and day, things passing away and things to come grapple with each other. We live in a grappling time. We live <coughs> at a time where a new day is dawning, but at the same time, the shadows still exist and are fighting, trying to fight back the day. So what's our comfort? Even though we walk through a shadow, even though we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, the scriptures say we will fear no evil. Why? Because you are with me. When Jesus was raised from the dead, it was the dawning of a new day. If you wake up in the morning and you, and you see at dawn, the darkness is passing away and the light is still shining. There's a shadow. We don't deny the painful reality of our existence. Rather, because Jesus is alive, we have a hope that's pulling us despite the reality of pain. We have a hope that's pulling us into the future when at one point it will be high noon when Jesus returns. This is where we live at dawn, at the grappling between the ages, the age of sin and death, the new age that is dawning in Christ. So how do we live between the ages? We live with hope, not just any kind of hope. Peter says it's a living hope, and this is so important. Jesus is alive today. He promised that he would be with us to the end of this age of sin and death. How do we have hope in our darkest moments? It's through the promise of the presence of Jesus with us. Jesus is alive, and Jesus has been where we've been. He's walked where we've walked. The word that Peter uses where he says, "You for now you have grief or sorrow, that same word for grief is what Jesus describes himself as having in the garden. Before he goes to the cross, Jesus says, my soul is grieved to the point of death. Jesus has walked the road you have walked. You are not alone today. He's present with you, and he's going to lead you through whatever you're walking through. Jesus had come to a point in his life where he was over, so overcome with grief, so overcome with sorrow, he thought it was going to kill him. He thought he was going to die. In fact, Jesus went through hell and back. But because he lives... You are going to live. Because he lives, you are going to make it if you keep your eyes on him. Jesus is going to get you through. But what got Jesus through? How did Jesus get past the moment of the garden and get past the cross? What was it that propelled him forward into the future? Hebrews 12, 2 says this. We look unto Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. What was on the other side of the pain 
What was on the other side of the pain that pulled Jesus through? It was the joy and the hope that was to come after the cross that got Jesus through the pain. Isaiah 53, 11 says, When he sees all that he's accomplished by his anguish, he will be satisfied. And because of his experience, my righteous servant will make it possible for many to be counted righteous, for he will bear all their sins. Do you see what Jesus saw? What was on the other side of his pain? What was on the other side of the cross? What was Jesus' hope? Jesus' hope was you. Jesus' hope was me. Jesus' hope was eternity with us. That was his joy, to see you forgiven, to see you set free, to see you reconciled with God. You having hope was his hope. And so what we have in this present moment, what we have at the dawn of this day, is we have the presence of Jesus with us. We have him who knows what it's like to suffer. We have him who walked the path that we have walked, who's been betrayed, who suffered injustice, who's been abandoned, who has physically been hurt, emotionally perplexed. He knows what it's like to be under so much stress that he thought it would kill him. This is why the resurrection leads us to hope, because we have our hope in a person that went through hell and back and is alive today, and we We'll follow him through our darkest moments and keep our eyes on him. And we believe that Jesus will have the final word in our life, not whatever pain we are experiencing today. Our hope, uh, it's not in the changing circumstances of life, but it is in a person. It's in Jesus. 1 Peter 1.8 says this, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, you believe in him and rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Peter's telling these people, look, I know you're going through great pain and you're great suffering, but you have a living hope. And if you'll put your eyes on Jesus, the one who put his eyes on you, somehow the Holy Spirit is going to supply you a fresh infusion of hope. He says it's a joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. It reminds me of Richard Wormbrand. Richard Wormbrand wrote a book called um, Tortured for Christ. He was a pastor behind the Iron Curtain of Communism. And he refused to turn his church over. He refused to preach the gospel of communism and kept preaching the gospel of Christ. And because of it, he was in prison for 14 years. And he endured many sorrows, many persecutions, much loss. There's a story that he tells. There was a, one day where he took a particular beating from a guard. A guard had broken his body pretty badly. He was hurt and broken. But in the midst of that brokenness, what Peter talked about, a joy inexpressible filled with glory. He said, a, a, a glory filled his prison cell. Literally, the presence of Jesus filled his prison cell. And, and it filled him with such a joy. He said, I only had one reaction. I only had, I just had one thing that I could do. He said, I had to get up and I had to dance. And with his body broken and in great pain, the glory of God fills his prison cell. And Richard Wormbrand gets up and begins to dance. 
before the Lord with great joy. How in the world can someone do that in such great pain? It's because those who are in Christ, though we experience the pain of today, the reality of today hurts. At the same time, we can experience the joy of the world that is to come. Joy and pain existing together. That's our present. Now let's finish today with the promise of the future. Jesus promises us. First Peter 1, 4, he tells us, you've been born again into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So Jesus has finished the work taking care of our past. The suffering servant is with us in the present as we suffer. And the day is coming where God has something for us stored up, an inheritance that will never perish and never fade. You see, our hope, Christian hope, sets out from a definitive reality in history, the resurrection. And it announces that the future of that reality will one day swallow up our current experience of reality. Death will be swallowed up in victory. You see, you've been born again. That means you've been brought into a new family, a new bloodline, and your father in heaven. Oh, he's got, he, he has an eternal inheritance for you that you will have in the city of God. Your inheritance is a portion of the new creation and all the blessings with it. You see, Peter explains that the object of their living hope is this inheritance, which is, he says, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. So your heavenly inheritance is imperishable, meaning that it's not subject to decay. It's unable to be worn out with the passage of time. The inheritance is undefiled, meaning it's not polluted by sin. It contains nothing unworthy of God's full approval. It's an inheritance that's unfading, earthly wealth. It will wither and grow dim or lose its beauty or glory, but not what the wealth stored up for the righteous, the inheritance they have in heaven. <clears throat> Your hope is safe today. It's kept by God himself. This is why our hope in Jesus is so Important because God is protecting you and your future hope. Here's the truth. This is a sad reality of life, but it's the truth. As much as you love your family, as much as you love your friends, as much as you love your career, we can't build our hope on these things and we can't build our identity on these things. Because if you live long enough, eventually all of these things will be taken from you. They're gifts to be enjoyed, but you can't build your hope or your life on them because if they are to ever crumble, then you too will crumble. Look, as much as you love your family, one day you'll have to part with family. As much as you love friends, friends can break your heart, be disloyal. As much as you love your career, you might be at the top of your game right now. You might be, at the, be the best of the best at what you do. But just look back a few generations. There has always been somebody who's been the best of the best doing what you do. But it doesn't last forever. It fades. That's why it's important we put our hope in something that doesn't fade. 
Jesus and his resurrected body is not going to fade. Your earthly body is going to fade. But if you're in Christ, he's going to resurrect this earthly body and give us new bodies. Peter says we have a living hope, which means if something is alive, it means it grows. It increases. It strengthens. It should be strengthening year by year. If you're maturing in your faith, actually your confident expectation and your hope of what is to come should be progressing every year. That's why it's not surprising if you find someone who has followed Jesus for many years. And as a pastor, I get to do this. I get to go to hospitals. I get to go to hospice rooms. And often I get to be with those who have followed Jesus, many of them for decades and decades and decades. And here's what I notice every time. As their outer body is wasting away, as their physical body, people that used to be strong, as their stature grows weaker and they're wasting away, what I often find is that what is not wasting away is their hope. They are more hopeful and more confident as death approaches that they're really going to take their last breath here but take their first breath there and that their inheritance is Even though their body is decaying here, what Jesus has stored up for them, it's not decaying. It's being kept safe for them there. And they're going to that thing. Christian hope is always moving us forward. It's always pressing on. Even though our feet are here planted on the earth, we know our reality is going to be with him forever one day. That first Resurrection Sunday, I went back, like I said, I read through all the counts of the resurrection. And one of them, one of the ones that struck me was Luke's account of the resurrection this year. Because in Luke 24, it tells the story of two of Jesus' disciples. They're not named. We don't know what their names are. But two of Jesus' disciples who are leaving Jerusalem and they're They're headed to Emmaus. They're on the road to Emmaus from Jerusalem. And it talks about these two disciples and how distraught they are. Why? Because they have no hope. They've lost their hope. Why? Because the one they had put their faith in, the one that who thought was going to change the world, had been killed and crucified by the Romans, Jesus. And so these two disciples, they're walking on the road to Emmaus, And I love the story because it says Jesus comes alongside them and is walking with them, but they do not recognize him. It reminds me of the musician on the street playing beautiful music, a world-renowned musician, but the people walking by didn't recognize the musician and who he was. Here are these disciples. They're walking on the road with Jesus and They don't recognize Jesus. And Jesus asks them, hey guys, what's going on? What's the deal? Why are you guys so dejected? And and they they basically say, do you not know what's going on? Everybody is talking about this. How are you the only one that doesn't know what's going on? And they talk about how they had put their faith in this Jesus and that he would be the Messiah. Look what it says in Luke 24, 21. We had hoped that he was the one. We had hoped that he was going to redeem Israel. And yes, besides all this, it's now the third day since these things have happened. You see, they had hoped. 
They had hoped that Jesus was going to behave a certain way. They thought they had hoped Jesus was going to take care of their earthly circumstance, which was to destroy the Romans and put Israel back on the map as the leader of the world and come and rule the nations. That's what they had hoped Jesus would do. But Jesus acted differently than what they had hoped. And see, they had put their hope in the wrong thing. They had put their hope in the wrong expectations. And I love it because Jesus, even though they don't realize what he's doing, Jesus is walking with them. Jesus was with them. And Jesus goes back through all of the scriptures, it says, from Moses all the way through the prophets. And Jesus goes back and he shows them in the scripture. Jesus starts singing the music of heaven to them. Jesus starts playing the intricate piece of heaven to them. And he explains how the Messiah was supposed to be uh, be suffered and to be killed, but then to be raised on the third day. And these disciples have a moment where this unknown man who's singing this beautiful scriptural music to them sits down with them and it says that Jesus breaks bread. And when the Jesus breaks bread, that their eyes were opened and they realize, oh my goodness, we're looking at Jesus, that he is alive, that he is the Messiah. And it says they're filled with so much joy that they run and they tell the others. Jesus finds these people where they had lost their hope. And he comes and he walks them through and he gives them hope again. And that's what I'm asking Jesus to do for you today. Maybe you've put your hope in something else, in a circumstance, in a person, in a job, in a situation. But Jesus wants to come alongside you today. If you're hopeless today, Jesus, I believe, is already alongside of you. You don't know it yet, but he's there. And if you'll stop long enough, if you'll have the conversation, if you'll dig into maybe where you lost your hope, then I believe the Son of God will appear and he will give you back your hope and he will give you back your life. And you will realize that he is the one whom your hope should rest. And that beautiful music of heaven will fill your soul and you will be filled with hope, hope knowing your past has been taken care of. It's finished. Knowing that he's with you walking with you in the present and knowing that your future is secure and safe in heaven. This world is passing away, but where you're headed is not because Jesus is alive. Happy Easter 2023. Father, I pray for your people today. Let them be filled with hope and joy and peace and believing. May the God of hope fill them today because you're alive. We thank you for the work of Jesus the presence of Jesus, and the promises of Jesus today. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Happy Easter, everybody. Enjoy a good meal and give Jesus some praise. We'll see you soon.